Welcome to the Your Brain Uncover podcast, where it's my job to interview pioneering scientists and authors to tease out some of their most fascinating work. Here we discuss neuroscience and psychology tools for everyday living. I'm Ayat Arabin, I'm a cognitive and clinical neuroscience student and a researcher at University College London. For today's episode, we're going to attempt to understand depression through the lens of an affective neuroscientist. Today I'm here with Dr. Aaron Heller, that is H-E-L-L-E-R. He's an affective neuroscientist and an assistant professor at the University of Miami. Now his work integrates neuroimaging and real-time mobile health methods to track emotion and behavior in humans. That is all aimed to better understand the biobehavioral mechanisms that give rise to the development of depression. Dr. Aaron, welcome to the show. It's an honor to have you here. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Aaron, I'd like to start off with the question that begs itself, and that is, what is depression and how do we exactly diagnose it? What is the criteria? Yeah, so the criteria of depression are two weeks of a variety of symptoms, including low mood, um, feeling an inability to experience pleasure or motivation to um, like engage in things that you used to enjoy, mm. um, disrupted sleep, um, disrupted um, maybe eating habits, like eating more, eating less than you used to, difficulty oh. concentrating, things like that. Interesting. And um, what? How? how is it that um, one can go about distinguishing between, oh, just having a bad day and depression itself? Yeah, well, usually that's best done by a trained professional. All right. Um, but so the idea about this two-week period is that if you have this these symptoms that have lasted for a um, for a per- persistent or sustained amount of time, then it's not just kind of a being down for a day or two, but it's something that has stuck around for quite a while. All right. I get it. And uh, uh, your your work really dive deep into the neural basis of anxiety. What got you so interested in this? Uh, anxiety? Um, well, so like my work initially was focused on positive emotion. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in depression, one of the key symptoms of depression is not just low mood, but the difficulty in experiencing pleasure. Um, having a hard time to kind of like motivate oneself to to do things that they used to enjoy. So because I was really interested in <clears throat> why and how we feel positive emotion, that led me to studying depression in particular. It's not so much the case that in anxiety people necessarily experience less um, positive mood, but that seems to be more specific to depression. All right, got it. Um, and. You know, um, in our modern day, many scientists kind of suggest that depression arises from a disruption in some sort of way to the highly interconnected, um, you know, circuits in our brain, uh, which kind of leads to a dysfunction in normal processing. Um, what what brain areas are certainly affected by depression? Well, there's a lot of debate and active research happening right now about that. Yeah. Um, because depression seems to emerge most often after kind of stressful life events. So if you have stressful life events that you don't have control over or that kind of happen repeatedly or chronically, people tend to, uh, that's the situation which some people tend to develop depression. 
So one area of the brain that's highly sensitive to stress is an area of the brain called the hippocampus. And um, the hippocampus appears to be smaller in people who have had um, or who have depression. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some evidence that if people recover from depression, the hippocampus seems to um, get larger again. Um, other areas of the brain that seem to be impacted are areas like the prefrontal cortex. Um, but it's really probably the case that many areas of the brain are impacted as a result of depression. Interesting. And what makes it stand in some sort of way when you're dealing with a person that is depressed? Um, what what makes, when you look at scans, what, what kind of distinguish a scan of a depressed person from a healthy individual? What do you look Yeah, for? so I mean, a big thing is, again, the hippocampus, right? It's not so much of an effect that you could just look at one person's yeah. scan and say, this person is depressed or this person is not. Right. The effects aren't so obvious. It's not like a stroke or a tumor in the brain where you can just look at one person's scan and say, this is what's going on. It's... We, we need, you know, tens, if not hundreds of scans to observe these effects because the thing is, is that there are so many symptoms of depression that are different from one another. So like mm-hmm. I said, you know, some people experience difficulty concentrating yes. and sad mood. Other people experience sad mood and difficulty experiencing pleasure, but not difficulty concentrating. So because depression is a is like a constellation of different symptoms. Yes. Different people have different types of depression. And so the brain of those different people are probably gonna be kind of different from one another. So that that means that we can't really, at, at least at the moment, diagnose depression off of a single person's um, brain scan. But like I said, the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex are definitely areas that are seem to be particularly important. All right. And um, what what role does the limbic system play in this? Well, the hippocampus is part of the limb is part of the traditional limbic system, actually. Okay. So, um, so that's one thing. Other areas of the limbic system, like the amygdala, um, mm. are probably important for depression as well. Uh, they're certainly implicated in stress-related reactions. So, learning about aversive events. So, you know, fear conditioning stuff like that. Um, and so there is some evidence that as a result of stress, chronic stress, the amygdala gets bigger or dendrites within the amygdala get bigger. Okay. Um, there isn't as consistent evidence that, for example, in depression, the amygdala is hyperactive or something like that. Mm. But the limbic system is implicated in depression insofar as the hippocampus is part of the limbic system and it appears to be affected by stress-related disorders. It's quite interesting. I've, um, I've heard this theory, um, and not long ago that the limbic system kind of acts like a thermostat when it comes to um, our mood. Uh, do you agree with that? So uh, in a way, if I was to elaborate on it, it's, uh, um, it kind of is what maintains equilibrium in our day-to-day lives by, um, you know, maintaining a certain balance in, our, in the signals between our neurotransmitters. Do you agree with that? Well, I don't think the limbic system in and of itself does that in isolation. I would say one of the kind of purposes of the whole central nervous system in the brain is to make predictions about the future and then learn learn about whether your predictions were accurate or not and make adaptations, which is kind of like what you're saying, like a thermostat in the sense that, you know, adjusting to whatever is coming in and whether that's expected or unexpected. But I don't think that 
that the limbic system is on its own a quote thermostat for what's happening out in the real world. So I, I guess I don't totally agree with that. All right. That's good to hear because it's just one of the many theories out there. Um, sure. I, so yeah, um, going back to the neural basis of things, um, to the roots. Um, what can you tell us about depression? Well, um, so you know, depression is partly uh, uh, a function of you know chronic stress, okay. which impacts the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex. Other areas that see, or other functions and areas that seem to be involved is um, the reward system. So as I said, anhedonia, the inability to experience pleasure <clears throat> is a key part <coughs> of, excuse me, of depression. Yes. Um, and so the reward system is also implicated in depression. So, so the reward system is made up of um, the nucleus accumbens, uh, which receives dopamine from the ventral tegmental area. And that area is really important for learning about reward and rewarding reward contingencies in the environment. And so in conjunction with the prefrontal cortex, which is probably important for uh, supporting our subjective experience of pleasure, mm -hmm. uh, the nucleus accumbens is another important area for reward and reward learning. All right, got it. And um, I mean, if if we were to, whenever you are to speak of depression, people immediately revert to the idea of antidepressants. How is it that antidepressants work? What is the mechanism beneath? Yeah, people don't really know exactly how they work. All right. Um, it's one of the theories by which they work is that um, so even though like an SSRI like like a serotonergic um, reuptake inhibitor um as soon as you take a, a drug like prozac yes it's affecting the central nervous system so um but it but these drugs typically take four to six weeks to have any effects mm. so uh it's really not totally clear why there is that delay or gap between when you start taking the drug and when it seems to have an effect and one theory is that <coughs> it's having its effect by actually um, facilitating or promoting neurogenesis in the hippocampus. So because the hippocampus is sensitive to stress, seems to be reduced in size uh, in depression as a result of taking SSRIs, when they're effective, they may be um, facilitating neurogenesis in the hippocampus, which may be one mechanism of um, treating depression successfully. So this kind of highlights the, you know, neuroplasticity in some sort of way. Ability, For sure. Yeah, this is quite fascinating. And um, speaking of the theory of you know, neurogenesis, and, uh, it's linked to depression. Um, how, how supported is this nowadays? Um, why it's not totally supported. I mean, one of the reasons why people are excited about ketamine as a potential drug is uh, that ketamine may have neuroplastic effects as well. Um, you know, there's active debate on whether neurogenesis occurs at all in adult primates. Um, so that is actually still not totally resolved. Um, and 
So this is just one theory for how they, for how SSRIs may work. I think it's perhaps like the best supported one at the moment, but okay. I think, but people don't really know. All right, and what role do social social factors play in this? I mean, in the recovery process. Well, I mean, social factors are massive in terms of the development of depression and the recovery process. Of course. So loneliness, the subjective experience of loneliness is a <clears throat> huge predictor of depression. So um, if you say that you're lonely, you're at risk for developing depression. And um, that's uh, usually predictive of having difficulty recovering and stuff. Mm -hmm. So having a social support network in during treatment, um, it's really important for facilitating recovery. Interesting. And I just wanted to, you know, so we kind of touched on uh, depression on a biological level, and now we're moving on to the psychological level. And um, if we were to talk about the, um, you know, the, if we were to build the ideal psychosocial plan for someone that's very depressed with major depression, what would you recommend including in it? The ideal treatment for somebody who is really depressed? Yes, something that is not just targeting um, the neural underpinnings of depression, but as a whole would guarantee optimum recovery. Um, well, it's probably going to include both psychotherapy yes. and pharmacotherapy. Okay. Uh, it depends a little bit on how severe someone's depression is and their mm -hmm. symptoms are, whether they have um uh received certain types of treatment before and whether those treatments have been effective or not so if you've been depressed for a long time and haven't gotten um and have gotten treatment but they haven't worked then it's probably worth considering alternative treatments if this is your first time being depressed then um i would definitely suggest some combination of psychotherapy like cognitive behavior therapy mm -hmm. and perhaps supplemented by um, uh, an antidepressant drug. Interesting. And um, it, to add on to that, there, there has been some debate on the use of, uh, you know, psychedelics to treat um, uh, depression. Well, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think like anything, anything that has an effect on your brain and changing your brain state can kind of facilitate or help somebody become like think look at things differently yes and so um i think that for some people psychedelics can be really effective probably i don't think that they're necessarily going to be effective for everybody all the time so i don't think they're going to be this wonder drug that works for everybody but i think that for some people um in certain situations they may be really effective and maybe more effective than traditional antidepressants yeah, that's quite true. So it's not really a one size fit all, especially when it comes to depression. So to to end this episode, I would just kind of like to ask, where do you think this the future of research with depression is heading towards? Yeah, I think that like having a very good understanding of the everyday behaviors and actions and experiences of people with depression and linking those to the neuroscience of depression and being able to predict what changes as they get better in real time is gonna be really important for being able to say, okay, you know, you're entering into this brain state, uh, this state of your depression, 
um, what is the kind of treatment that you need or support that you need right now to be able to maximize your likelihood of, of recovery. All right, so you need to meet yourself where you are, and then depending on that, find the right support, um, you know, right people to support you through your journey of recovery. Is that it? And, I, and using science in the real world as people go about their daily life. So using this naturalistic mobile tracking kind of work is going to help to link the biology with real world actions. Can you, more, can you elaborate more on this mobile tracking um, technology? Well, yeah, so that includes things like instead of just bringing someone into the clinic or into the lab and asking them how they feel, yes. um, use information from how they live their life. So their text messaging history, how they tend to respond to people, how they report feeling in the moments as they go about their day, mm -hmm. um, whether they tend to stay at home all the day, all, all day long, or whether they tend to kind of explore and go check out new places, stuff like that. I think those are really important indicators of behaviors that people with depression may or may not be doing that could be used to help identify subtypes of depression and to link treatments of depression for depression to these subtypes. All right. Um, can I ask, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind when you mention something like, you know, text messages and looking at the history of someone's searches, uh, what about privacy policies? Uh, what, 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 what guidelines and restrictions are there in place to make, to guarantee that they're there's nothing, you know, um, that's going on. Yeah, so I mean, this is being done in research right now, yeah. so it's not being done in the clinical realm. Oh, um, okay. Although, although to be honest, I mean, there are plenty of apps that you give up your rights for everything when you download TikTok <laughs> and stuff like that anyway. Yeah. So it's really, it, you know, um, people kind of this question comes up a lot, honestly, but to be totally honest, people don't seem to care that much about their privacy if they're doing something with their phone that they enjoy, you know? So um, I don't know. I think it, I think it's an important question. I think it's a really important question. If people don't want their um, texting history to be looked at or if people don't want their location to be used, then that sh should be honored. And, um, but we also tend to, it seems, tend to be downloading applications on our phones and using applications on our phones that are tracking us all the time and nobody seems to be doing anything about it anyway so i don't know it, yeah it appears to be that it's some somewhat about the way you phrase it and how you propose the idea i mean with instagram you, you log in and you never think twice about your privacy and what it is that is being exploited there so i think it goes back again to trust as well you know trust in the people using it and um yeah, I think we should always have in mind that if you're not, um, if you're not the consumer, you're the product in some sort of way, even when it comes. For sure. Yeah. Um, where do you see the future of you know mobile health technology heading towards? I think that mobile mental health is exploding right now, and yeah. we'll see if it if it has a an effect and if there's like a bit of a bubble on it or not. Um, yes. But there's a lot of apps out there trying to gain a foothold in this in this area so um i think the next five years is going to be really telling yeah i mean i mean speaking of these digital therapeutics are there any certain apps that you would recommend for someone that's dealing with depression at the moment uh no i would i would look online and i mean things for meditation like calm and headspace are like the big oh, yes. the big 
the big apps in the field. And I think they tend to do a pretty decent job actually. Mm. Um, for There aren't really great um, CBT apps or anything like that. I mean, there are lots of ones that are trying, but I okay. think that if they all struggle with um, making it fun and engaging. Mm. Like you use Instagram <laughs> because it's fun and because you want to kind of see what other people are posting. Yeah. There isn't that kind of engagement uh, interface, engaging interface for uh, an, an app like like for you know mental health at the moment. And I think there's a lot of different apps that are trying, but there isn't one that I would say I would I would say is like you gotta go check this one out. <laughs> so there are no recommendations. I've, I've I've tried a couple. There's this one called Flow Neuroscience. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't. So they're using innovative brain stimulation to uh, treat depression from home with no medication. It's completely non-invasive, obviously. And um, th there's a lot of good feedback from, but there's always that limitation that you've mentioned. Um, and um, yeah, so if, if if someone isn't is kind of not a hundred and ten percent sure they want to give out their information so openly, they should just go to their a licensed therapist and talk to them face to face. I yeah, think, I think that's and, a limitation. I mean, one of the movements, um, which you're probably aware of, is simply like get trying to help people get more access to psychotherapy yeah. via um, uh, online applications. So that is something that um, I don't know if that will ultimately be sustainable and useful, but it's certainly something that I think is a is a good thing to try for people who may not have alternatives or or. Um, need a more inexpensive option yeah that's quite true i mean um even not just psychotherapy if you were to think about it with the depression the first thing that comes to mind is the, the inability to connect with the people around you and i feel like that's fundamental yeah. for you know on the path of treatment and if, if there was an app to maybe uh provide a support uh you know support group or community that that'd be quite good and um um, you know, just a safe hub to be openly talking about your problems. Wouldn't that be useful in some sort of way? I agree. Yeah. All right. We'll see what the future <laughs> has to hold. Um, sure. you, um, thank you so much for your time. Before ending this episode, uh, can I uh, kindly just ask, what would you really tell someone that is dealing with depression at the moment um, and uh, is kind of hesitant to seek out help? What would you tell them to do? Uh, well, I would encourage them to try and find a professional that they could see to talk to. Um, I would encourage them, as you said, to seek out social support, family, friends who they trust and who are supportive of them. And I would really encourage them to think about the things that they used to do, that they enjoyed, that they maybe have stopped doing. This is something that's hard in the uh, midst of this ongoing pandemic and the kind of world we're living in. Definitely. But I, I would say that one of the best treatments for depression is oddly simple, which is just finding things that you used to enjoy doing that you stopped doing and just starting to do them again. You may not enjoy them at first, so it kind of means that you have to force yourself to do them. Mm. But if you keep with it, it tends to be effective at, at just making you feel a little bit better. And if you keep doing it, then it can kind of gather momentum and uh, be a, a very effective intervention for um, people who are experiencing depression. 
Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for for your you know wise words. I, there's a lot of wisdom to be gleaned out of them, and um, uh, thank you for your time. Honestly, it was an honor to have you here. Thanks, Ira. Thank you. Um, for all you listeners out there, I hope this uh, episode has allowed you to chip away a little at the mysteries behind you know depression. Um, we've attempted to provide a little biological validation for the psychological differences in the types. Um, you know, of depressive states that individuals face. Um, and for all you listeners out there, I really hope this has been useful. I've provided a link to, uh, well, Dr. Heller's uh, discussed publications. And if you want to support this podcast, please feel free to subscribe to Spotify and leave me a comment if you have any feedback. Thank you for listening. And more importantly, thank you for your interest in science. I'll be talking to you very soon. Bye. Bye.